0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts, and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, we've got a terrific show for you. The start of the show, we've got the CFO of ING waiting in the wings. Plus, we've got digestion of enormous market moves. You're watching Jeff, Karen, and myself, Steve. Here are your headlines. Wall Street whiplash. The Dow loses more than 1,000 points in its worst session since 2020, as U.S. markets abruptly erase all post-Fed gains. The 10-year Treasury yields, though, surging back above 3%, whilst the dollar hits two-decade highs against a basket of currencies ahead of the key U.S. payrolls data, expected to show once again solid jobs growth but cooling wages
2: the tech sell-off continues in asia with the hang Seng sharply lower after the nasdaq sees its worst session in two years
3: the bank of england issues a gloomy outlook on the uk economy flagging prices could rise by 10 percent and rising or lifting interest rates to their highest level since 2009
0: An unprecedentedly large shock to real income in this country, coming from abroad, it's a terms of trade shock that is having a negative effect on real income. We think that is going to feed through to activity, you know, during the course of this year in a big way.
1: Right, I'm going to be quick at the wall here. You know the bigger numbers. Good morning, Karen. By the way, Um, we've got a big CFO waiting in the wings as well, who will give his view on the markets as well. Look. Uh, Safe to say, you look at the markets and then uh, Mohammed will roll forward to the Treasuries while I'm talking as well. I want a myth bust. One, as I said to you this time yesterday, it was not a dovish hike, okay? It was a hawkish hike with 50 basis points uh, marked in for the next couple of of meetings as well, plus 25s thereafter. The point was, of course, that Steve Leesman had asked the right question about 75 basis points, of which the Fed answered honestly. Jay Powell said, no, it's not in our current thinking. But too many people believed it was a dovish hike and it wasn't, okay? said that yesterday and we'll say it again today. Two, it hasn't so far been a bad week for US equities. Despite the enormous oscillation we've seen, actually, the US equity markets, well, have a look yourselves, ladies and gentlemen, they have barely moved. The moves are 0.3% at most, in the case of some of these major indices, about 0.14 as well. So it wasn't a dovish hike. It hasn't so far been a bad week for equities. And it wasn't a capitulation day yesterday. I don't know who started that one as well. Maybe they thought there just weren't any bids for their offers, but the fact to the matter is the volumes were in line with the 100 day moving average they were not excessive and if we had have seen a large capitulation day with vast tranches of stocks being sold off then we would have seen the volume spiking as well Four, and I've made this point before to you as well, the VIX has zero predictive powers. It is an insurance policy which fell aggressively in the previous session and moved up aggressively as the market was falling, not before the market was falling. Zero predictive powers. And my final point before we move on to Karen as well is what is the market really worried about? Is it worried about inflation? Is it worried about recession? Is it worried about market valuations? And the answer is, of course, it is all three. And if you've got stagflation as a potential scenario going forward as well, you need lower valuations for not having a market wobble. And at the moment, the valuations are not supportive, even at these levels, for a lot of indices. There, Karen, I've done it. <laughs>
2: On that note, let me take you to the NASDAQ. We dropped, and uh, was a fairly sizable drop, 5% down. But as Dick pointed out, we have barely moved over the course of the week, just 0.14% uh, down at this point. So it's been a lot of noise to go nowhere over the course of the week. Worth noting, if you look at that big fall of 5%, Apple was one of the worst performers and FANG stocks themselves down more than the NASDAQ. The FANG Plus stock slump yesterday was 6.6%, although that was eclipsed, as you would expect in a downbeat session by the big momentum plays, the ARK Innovation Fund that had also gone up a day earlier. That was down the near on 9%. So you saw heavier pain there. But I think worth noting, too, if you look at some big-name stocks that have listed in recent years that have had just extreme valuations and So much hot air that has lifted share prices beyond expectations. It was a lot of these stocks that fell by double digits too in session yesterday. In terms of uh, the performance of some of the majors, that 5.5% that came off Apple, again, I think Netflix was one that a lot of investors revisited. That was where we started Earning season questioning the valuation because of the slump in subscribers. and That stock down 7.7%. Meta going with it. And across the board, you were seeing sizable falls. Amazon, too, I think, was of note. The 7.5% slump you saw there. Twitter, though, in contrast to the rest of the market, actually pulled higher. And this, again, around the deal-making from Elon Musk trying to take over the company, Jeff.
3: Yeah, thanks very much, Karen. Uh, let's just mention the uh, dollar index, obviously a 20 year high here. And increasingly, I think uh, countries around the world are just getting a little bit uncomfortable with the strength of the dollar now and what the Fed's announcement just uh, circling back to what Steve had to say at the top of the show, what the Fed's announcement actually means for the uh, the different interest rate uh, variables that we've got here and the fact that the dollar is being supported now by a more hawkish sounding fed even as uh, of course yesterday we had the bank of england move 25 basis points but it didn't seem to help the pound particularly in fact if anything it fell away here uh, let's also have a look at the futures while we're just uh, rounding out the story for you the the fact is the futures actually at this stage are not giving you a whole lot of direction if anything they're pretty flat to negative at this stage the implied open on the NASDAQ at the moment is off about uh, two tenths of one percent and we're off about a tenth of one percent as far as the S&P 500 is concerned. So let's pivot to those earnings. We've had some numbers here from ING Group, the group telling us that they're going to start a 380 million euro share buyback. The company delivering a net number on the quarter of 429 million euros with a CET1 ratio of 14.9 percent and a total income line of 4.6 billion euros. Let's catch up with the CFO of the business, uh, Tanata Futrakal, who's waited patiently for us. He is the CFO of ING. Tanata, welcome to the programme this morning. Um, Let me just ask you a very open question on the earnings. How good or otherwise do you feel about the quarter you've delivered?
4: Well, thank you very much. It's been a a turbulent quarter, as you know, geopolitically. But I think we are seeing things quite resilient operationally and financially. If you look at our net interest income, it's actually turning around on the back of rising interest rates. So we're getting a bit of tailwind from uh, rates uh, reflected in our earnings. Fee income is at almost one of our highest quarter this uh, this quarter rising about 9.3% and our costs cost down through some of the cost saving initiatives and cost discipline that we have. So we're actually generating quite significant levels of capital in Q1 having said that we do have uh, a sizable exposure to Russia and that's why you see in our results that we have set aside a fairly sizable loan loss provisionings to cover our Russia risk.
3: Yeah, let's just focus on that for a moment. 834 million uh, related to Russia exposure, 987 million in terms of uh, total provision here. Could you just give us a bit more flesh on the bone as to what that extra provisioning on Russia represents and uh, also what your situation is with regard to your ongoing relationship to that Russian business? Obviously, we're looking at a lot of corporates at the moment who are trying to either pull themselves out of the market completely or at least temporarily.
4: Yes, I think since the crisis broke out in, I think, the second or third week of February, we've been actively de-risking and reducing our exposure to Russian clients. And I think over the past uh, 60 days or so, we have been and we announced today that we have reduced our russian exposure by approximately fifteen percent or about a billion euros and that we have also announced that we do no longer any new business with uh, russian clients so we're gradually bringing that level of uh, exposure down in terms of russia and that 800 million um, loan loss provisioning is actually on top of additional capital we set aside for our russia risk of around 1.7 billion. So we feel that we have set aside, given the situation today, appropriately for Russia risk.
2: Good morning, as Karen jumping in. I want to ask you a little bit more about expenses because uh, that was a, a fascinating line that was slightly different in your results versus the other banks where we've mostly seen expenses go up and whether that's related to staffing costs or inflation that some of the, the various rival banks are seeing. How are you able to hold the line on costs and what do you anticipate from here as we continue to hear from various countries and central banks warning that inflation will continue to rise from this point?
4: Yeah, we, we do set do see that in the eurozone as well with The the fact that inflation is high wages are up and we do see that cost pressure within ING. But having said that, you know, we're we one of the most digital banks in the eurozone and we have taken a number of cost programs from uh, decisions taken in twenty two and twenty one, which is feeding into our numbers uh, this year. So our guidance for our cost for this year is that despite the inflation, we expect to keep our costs flat or even slightly down
1: this year. Tanate, really nice to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Look, um, everyone always assumes that when net interest margins go up and interest rates go up, it's great news for the banks. But I've always had great concern about that blanket premise. And your numbers make me even more concerned because your first quarter, end of quarter, cost of risk has gone to 62 basis points on average customer lending versus 15 basis points a year ago are you more concerned about lending at the moment despite the fact that your nims are
4: improving yeah i I think if you look at our first quarter results and look at that uh, loan loss provisioning it's almost related all to russia right the underlying book in other businesses mortgages consumer lending corporate banking other than russia the level of risk cost is actually very benign in the first quarter but I think one thing that uh, we advocate is really the fact that rate rises should be coming gradually to allow businesses and customers to absorb this higher level of rates. And I think in the eurozone, we're not really talking about tightening yet, right? It's, it's about normalization of rates, taking interest rates from negative to positive territory. So, so it's, it's a different uh, situation than what you see in the U.S. At
1: the moment, you've been in business for decades. I mean, how on earth can we have a negative deposit rate of 50 basis points when we have high single digit inflation now in many parts of the eurozone? Does it make any more sense to you than it does to many of our viewers?
4: Well, it it never made sense to me to have negative rates to begin with. (laughs) But uh, I think the time for normalization is late and and we do expect that the ECB is going to move quite aggressively in the second half of this year and I think it it will bring more more health to the financial system and to businesses and clients as well to have normal interest rate, normal curves applying going forward.
3: Uh, love the comment. I think we should put that on a uh, little bit of tape and just loop it over and over again. It never made sense to me in the first place. Tanata, lovely to see you. Thank you very much for helping us out with the conversation on your earnings. Tanata Futrakal, the uh, CFO of ING. Of course, we're going to stay focused on that key issue. If we have inflation at 10 percent in the UK, which the Bank of England is now suggesting we will hit, that's double digit inflation. Why are interest rates at 1%? We'll talk about the Bank of England's latest decision and my interview with Andrew Bailey when we come back. Welcome back, everybody. The Bank of England has hiked rates by 25 basis points. As you all know, that takes rates now to 1%, the highest level in 13 years. However, it was viewed by some on the Governing Council as insufficient to combat inflation. Three members on the nine-member committee dissenting and urging a 50 basis point increase The latest move was accompanied by a bleak forecast from Threadneedle Street, with inflation expected to reach double figures by year's end, while the UK economy is poised to fall into recession next year. The Bank of England's bleak projections sent sterling tumbling to its lowest level against the dollar in almost two years. Well, I sat down with the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey, and I started by asking him to characterise the nature of the exchanges on the committee, with more members obviously now pushing for faster action.
0: I was one of the people who voted for 25, so I, I'm having to put myself into the into the sort of the, the position of of those who didn't. I mean, I think first of all, let me just say about the MPC. Um, we come to you know, we meet every broadly six weeks. And, and, and I th- you know, one of the great strengths of the MPC process is that, you know, we reevaluate every time, we take on board all the data information, intelligence we, we get in the meantime. And so, you know, I, I certainly, I, I know I and my colleagues, you know, it, you know, we start again in that sense and completely go across the whole sort of sweep of information. So, uh, so obviously, you know, it follows from that that people can, you know, people can adapt and change their, their views. I, I mean, I think that, that let me sort of then put it into the perspective of the last six weeks. I mean, we've obviously had one huge event uh, in the last, well, more than six weeks, but I mean, it's gone on now, which is obviously the terrible events in Ukraine. Um, These have had effects on prices in this country, I mean, particularly energy prices, but also food prices because Ukraine is a major, major global food food producer. And unfortunately that is pushing up uh, the uh, outlook for inflation it's causing a, an even bigger shock to real income in this, incomes in this country. And we're, as, I've said, as I've said before, we're walking this very narrow path now between these two things. And different members of the committee will view the distribution of the two sides of the path differently. I, I would also note that on the question of what guidance we give, there were, there were other members of the committee who took a view the other way and said we should probably rein back the guidance because, you know, they, they think that uh, you know, maybe this path, is, is, you know, this path of rising interest rate is more nearly done in that sense. So you know, it, you've got to see it through that lens, I think, that we've got these historic events going on, sadly pushing up inflation, uh, and each member of the committee has to sort of, in a sense, reach their own evaluation of what the most sensible setting of policy is in that context. So, you yeah, know, some of us felt the best thing was to continue, you know, another gradual step of 25 basis points, and then next time we'll come back and completely reevaluate the thing again. Uh, and, and some other of my colleagues felt that it was, you know, it was appropriate at this point to do uh, to do more. There were two
3: really big numbers that stood out for me. One was the 10% inflation number, yeah. and the other, I think, was the, um, uh, was the 5.75% wage growth yeah. by the end of this year. I think the bit the market is struggling with here is trying to understand how 1% is an appropriate um, number for interest rates, for policy rates right now, given that they both imply... A much higher level of inflation going forward well above the two percent target that you're aiming for shouldn't you be front loading here and shouldn't the 50 basis points have happened
0: well i think it's important to put that into the context of the shock that we're seeing we're seeing this unprecedentedly large shock to real income in this country coming from abroad it's a terms of trade shock that is having a negative effect on real income we think that is going to feed through to activity you know during the course of this year in a big way We're already seeing, I think, some signs of that in in, in the sort of the consumer side. There's a very large gap now between consumer and business confidence in this country. So that I think the answer to the question, you know, what does monetary policy do, actually has to start with what is going to be the impact of the shock. We think the impact of the shock in terms of pushing down activity, pushing down inflation is going to be much bigger. And therefore, what, how we sort of calibrate the monetary policy response needs to take that into account. And that's why I, I, I perfectly sort of see your line of argument, which is you've got inflation going up you know, much higher. Why aren't you doing a lot more? Our view is you have to put that into the context of the shock. And as I explained in, in, in my remarks earlier today, I think you have to distinguish the shocks that we're seeing here from the shocks that the US is seeing and the shocks that the euro area is seeing. We're a bit of an intermediate case, I think.
3: Yeah. And I'll I'll just briefly wrap it up by saying I think the market also took that view as well. And it was expecting perhaps um, a more hawkish move here from the Bank of England, because ultimately that reaction in sterling was a, a big fall off in the pound. Uh, which, of course, will do nothing to help the bank's cause because as the pound declines, of course, we know that that imports even more inflationary pressure into the UK economy, Karen.
2: Indeed, Jeff. I think a lot of messaging here too, potentially, for the ECB about the narrow pathway that they're also having to navigate between growth and inflation here and just whether they should get going soon if they do want to front load and anchor some of those interest rate, the inflation expectations with interest rate moves. But just one other point here, and perhaps this is the dinner party conversation Around the table tonight. You're going if you to haven't, you're going to a dinner party tonight. <laughs> well, 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 we can afford it before you inflation just goes up. We had a three-day wedding last weekend. <laughs> you're going to a dinner party tonight. Do you lock in rates now? Or do you wait? If we're talking about a recession down the track, we all know what a recession typically brings. It does bring lower interest rates. So, are we looking at a period of time where we've got elevated Not if it's rates now? Karen? But then, do they come back down? Not around if the it's
1: stagflation? As, uh, as the discussion, uh, brilliant discussion. I'll, I'll make one point. Um, I've got a hundred to make, but I'll just make one point here as well. Um, There is a cost of living crisis. It is enormous in the United Kingdom. It is uh, across the board whether it's driven by supply or demand inflation. We've had that debate many times. There are those of us who think it's demand led as well. It is creating another headache. Forget about sterling and the markets from one moment. A political tsunami potentially is going to come from this as well, which could eventually lead to a path where the Prime Minister, the sitting Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, uh, could have a challenge to his leadership. And that is clear and present today as we absorb the losses that the Conservative Party is making in local council elections across the country. Now, early reports say it may not be as bad as the Tories thought, but others are saying that Boris Johnson's charisma and charm is now a bit of a busted flush. And actually, maybe there needs to be a challenger within the Conservative Party before the next election. So the cost of living crisis that Jeff and Andrew were talking about in that excellent interview. And by the way, Jeff, it was excellent. I think you made all the right points there as well. That has enormous political ramifications to which then Boris will go next door to Rishi, number 11, and he'll say, got anything for us? Can we cut taxes at all? And Rishi will turn around and say, hang on. We just raise taxes as well. We just raise national insurance. We're raising taxes because we've got to pay for the pandemic, because we've got to pay for Ukraine, because we've got to pay for profligacy across the board as well. This is not only a monetary policy headache, a market headache, it's turning into a political headache. And that was me saying that because now I've got to move on. OK, uh, I, oh, go on, let Jeff come in. So I think he's got an answer on this.
3: No, no, no. I was just going to say, Steve, and I, and I think to follow up on your point the risk is that the government blinks here and it ultimately does what Richie Sunak has said he's trying not to do, which is add to the total national debt by responding to this crisis by handing out money. And we know that actually that's a recipe just to exacerbate the prospects for an even deeper recession going forward. What this government and what it should do with the bank of england it seems to me is yes let's let's front load the interest rate move let's take back these very easy monetary conditions Um, let's deal with some of the pressures that are causing inflation and ultimately i think it's inevitable that we have to see higher interest rates as a result of that but use the fiscal response that you have to target those most in need at the lowest tier of society, not candy for all, focus on those who need it most and perhaps use any fiscal bandwidth you have to focus on the supply constraints. Because as we know, it's the supply issue that's been the problem here. It hasn't been aggregate demand and too much money, perhaps, at this stage, generating that inflation. It's been caused by supply chain issues. So it seems to be very clear what they ought to be doing. But politicians like to be popular. And we know that generally means they think handing out cash to everybody is the right solution.
2: Yeah, The fiscal uh, changes, I think, will be quite interesting from here. If you consider what has been done on the continent, you've seen way more intervention by, say, the French. And you've seen it to another country who's trying to cap energy prices by particularly intervening mm-hmm. in the electricity market, you've seen that uh, very much in France, and as a result prices there are lower than what consumers are facing here in the UK, so that intervention from the government I think is quite fascinating, but also a lot of economists don't disagree with it, given that you cannot seemingly tackle inflation with monetary policy at this point because of the causes of it. I mean, what it, what happens if you put up interest rates? What does it do to the supply chain coming out of China? It doesn't really do very much, does it? It might take a little bit of the shine off demand to an extent, but it Really, actually correct some of the problems you're saying. It's time to
1: admit that the cat is out of the bag and this isn't just about supply chain anymore. I never believed it was just supply. I never believed it was transitory. I've said so for the last year and a half as well. There is a lot of demand side coming in as well in certain jurisdictions. And when it comes in the ECB as well, then their headache is going to be even bigger. Um, I better move on because Rod is crying in the gallery. He's the director, by the way. He's an old friend of ours and he wants us to move on. So we shall. When I say old, I mean old. Right, Ace, and he's my age. Uh, a Senate committee has passed a bill that would allow the U.S. to sue oil-producing nations that collude to boost crude prices. Hello. That's interesting, isn't it? I've heard of this one before. Uh, the legislation could see the likes of Saudi Arabia and Russia be targeted by the U.S. Attorney General. You've got to remember, by the way, this has been something that's talked about and has tried to get through legislation-wise for decades, okay? So if this one gets through, then it starts getting tasty on U.S. politics. Uh, the bill must be passed by the full Senate and the House before it can be signed into law by the President. But I want to put in context, they've, certain politicians in certain jurisdictions have tried to do this for decades. Karen?
2: And let's push on to OPEC, which has uh, said uh, very important uh, comments today really around modest increases here. OPEC and its allies have agreed to increase output by 432,000 barrels per day from June, ignoring calls again from Western countries for an accelerated rise in supply supply and made record high energy prices. As you can see, Dan has joined us from Abu Dhabi. Dan, just get into the detail here because a lot of people think that there should be more product out there in the market that we're getting into this demand destruction territory because prices are so high. But if we hear commentary like we had yesterday from central banks warning about recessions, it does give OPEC and its allies more ammunition not to turn on the taps because they might be concerned about the other side if they do increase supply to the market.
5: Correct, right. And up until now, OPEC Plus has basically stuck to the script. And this time around, they've approved another modest increase in supply, 432 barrels a day for June, in what was a meeting that lasted just over 10 minutes' time. So what we're seeing is a replication of a strategy that OPEC has had in place For some time now, in terms of the details, the most interesting piece of commentary that we saw come out of this was OPEC saying that it views the market as balanced. And that is, of course, despite a number of concerns that are weighing on prices like the war in Ukraine, which is continuing to play out. We now have this looming EU ban on Russian oil as well and ongoing demand concerns from Asia. But here's the thing. OPEC is already struggling to hit output quotas because of a range of factors as well, and only the UAE and Saudi Arabia have the spare capacity to pump more, both countries stopping short of doing so. Remember, OPEC Plus also works on consensus, and it's pretty hard to see Russia supporting any kind of supply increase when demand for its oil is under significant pressure. I think the next meeting, which is going to take place on June 2nd, is probably going to be a little more interesting because By then, we're going to have more clarity on what the EU decides to do regarding this Russian oil import ban. Remember, the EU buys a lot of Russian oil, about 2.3 million barrels a day on average just last year, which is about 26% of their total crude oil imports. So a lot could happen as this potential ban takes shape. Hungary and Slovakia still appear to be against banning Russian oil given their dependence on it, so we could likely see some fractures within the bloc as this takes shape. And analysts say Russia could also halt flows before that wind-down period actually comes to an end. We might even see secondary sanctions on Russian oil from the United States, which would also add to a possible bull case for the market. At the same time, buyers of Russian oil like China and India, for example, might have something to say about any new potential sanctions as well. Just on Steve's point regarding this NOPEC bill, look, he's exactly right. It has been playing out for many, many years now. And this is going to be interesting to watch. But you also get the sense that speaking to policymakers in this part of the world, particularly Saudi Arabia and the UAE, they're really not too concerned about this. And that's because this is a narrative that has been in the market for a long time now. And also, the producers out here view some of the policy decisions coming from the United States as somewhat at odds with their overall goals for the market. The United States has also said that it's going to be buying back 60 million barrels of crude for the strategic petroleum reserve starting in 2023. That would increase tightness in the market. And at the same time, It's asking these OPEC producers to pump more oil in order to bring down prices while also trying to pass legislation in the United States that would limit their ability to do so. So the narrative from the U.S. looking increasingly confusing, at least from a producer perspective in this part of the world.
1: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.